Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, AI and Human Flourishing, a pipe dream? Please welcome Jake Denton, Research Associate in the Heritage Foundation's Tech Policy Center. Good morning. Thank you all for being here. My name's Jake Denton. I'm a Research Associate here in the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we're very happy that you're all joining us here for what will almost certainly be one of many AI events that we have over the next several years. Um, and we thought it would be fitting to get this rolling, this uh, what will naturally become a series of events, uh, with some background information, things that will help navigate uh, this conversation so that you're able to follow along regardless of your familiarity with the topic. Um, and so naturally, I think it makes sense to start with AI itself. Uh, you know, you turn on the TV today and it seems like everything under the sun is artificial intelligence and it can make it very difficult to place a definition on it. Um, and oftentimes here in Washington, you'll see that uh, there are a million different definitions for AI. So just to put it in a very simple context, uh, when we talk about AI, we're referring to co computer systems that can perform tasks which typically require human intelligence, such as voice recognition, complex problem solving, uh, or just decision making. Uh, these are things that uh, typically couldn't be automated without these types of systems. And so while it may seem like AI is a new thing, uh, it has found its way into many aspects of our daily lives, whether it be product recommendations or uh, in entertainment systems such as Netflix or Spotify recommending you a, a new movie or a song. Um, and so the recent evolutions have made it feel like it's um, some sci-fi technology, but it's really been around for a, quite a bit of time and you've used it in your daily lives. Another term you might hear today is machine learning or ML. Uh, machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence that enables these computational systems to learn patterns from data and make decisions or predictions without being explicitly programmed to perform the task. And so this is kind of that passive learning element. Um, you know, oftentimes when you hear uh, these machines are evolving or they're getting out of control, they're kind of referring to the sci-fi offset of this machine learning concept. Um, and it's much more kind of standard. It's less uh, kind of scary than, uh, you know, TV would make you believe, it's really just the way that these systems evolve and become better over time. Um, machine learning also enables these systems to improve their performance uh, on a specific task over time as they're exposed to the new information, whether that be a new data set or the inputs the user is using for that system. Uh, you might also hear our speakers today mention large language models. Uh, a large language model, or LLM, is a type of artificial intelligence that uses deep learning and massive data sets to understand, summarize, generate, and predict text-based uh, text content, such as language translations, chatbots, and AI assistants. Large language models use neural networks to understand and generate human-like text. Neural networks are inspired by the human brain and work by processing input text through multiple layers of interconnected nodes, similar to neurons. This allows them to capture meaning and context of the input text and generate a relevant response. These typically run with deep neural networks, which are sophisticated uh, machine learning models that leverage multiple layers of interconnected nodes and process and learn from data. It is particularly effective in capturing complex patterns and relationships with said data. 
many of these deep neural networks or large language models uh, run with black boxes. And so uh, these are often very complex and opaque internal structures. And the term refers to an AI system whose decision making is obscured behind a kind of complex black box, making it very difficult to comprehend or interpret the particular decision path. And so within these models, the data and computations are distributed across a vast network of interconnected nodes. Um, and it makes it hard to trace back the decision-making process. And so what we refer to when we talk about explainable AI is kind of lifting that black box. And that is something that will naturally be part of the conversation today. We're going to try and uh, present a path forward that is more transparent, it's easier to trace, it's um, more consumer-friendly uh, and more governance-friendly. It's something that is going to make these systems integrate in a more seamless fashion. Uh, without that kind of uh, shadowy lore around the system, it uh, makes it more comfortable for us to integrate these. Um, and so, as I was mentioning, this opacity can uh, lead to concerns uh, related to trust, interpretability, and the potential for bias or harm harmful outputs. And so a large focus here at the Heritage Foundation and a lot of centers around DC is how we can facilitate explainable AI. Um, and I believe we'll get into it in much greater detail today, but when we talk about explainable AI, as I was mentioning, it really all stems around lifting that black box. Um, and it can take place in many different forms, whether it be global or local. Um, and all that really means in practice is the extent to which the data is revealed. So for a global system, it's truly the full process of learning. Whether From the data set to the output, it'll make everything transparent. For a local explainable model, it really just gives you some additional context. It will explain to you why a particular decision made the most sense in that output, but it won't give you insights to the full data set. Um, you might have seen this if you're using the AI tools with Claude Anthropics model. It's begun to explain, if you ask it to you know, make text better, why it's made a particular decision. Um, so this is something that is beginning to make itself uh, available on the market. Um, and so that essentially will wrap up our key terms. Um, and it was obviously a very quick overview, uh, but it's hopefully a blueprint and a map that will guide you through this conversation and uh, help you make sense of what we talk about today. Um, and so we have gathered a, a great panel of experts and they're representing a very diverse uh, span of different policy issues under AI from protecting kids online to combating the Chinese Communist Party's influence within these systems. Um, and so I'll now welcome our panelists, John Askinus, David Dunmeyer, Bill Drexel, Kara Frederick, and Matt Stoller, and Wes Hodges, who is moderating today's program. So I'll head things over to Wes and we'll get started. All right. Thank you so much, Jake. And we even have the right order. <laughs> Terrific. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, Jake, thank you for that very, very needed introduction to, to AI so we can jump from the terms straight into the policy. Um, as we've discussed, artificial intelligence is poised to transform our country. While we expect AI to enhance productivity, widespread adoption could also threaten many pillars of society we take for granted. Uh, I'm Wes. I have the privilege of being the lead for the Big Tech Campaign here at Heritage and, and the moderator for this wonderful panel. Uh, I will introduce and interview our speakers sequentially, but there is something you all can do to help me with this program. After their remarks, we want to hear your questions with one condition. You must have a question mark at the end of your question. <laughs> so with that, let's just get right to it. So our first speaker is my friend John Esconis. 
Uh, John is a senior fellow with the Foundation for American Innovation. He is an assistant professor of politics at the Catholic University of America, where he works on the connections between the Republican tradition, technology, and national security. I've asked John to speak on children and AI, so let's kick it off. My first question for you, John. AI technology, allow, uh, technology allows seemingly innocuous tools like deepfakes to generate child sexual abuse material, or CSAM, from either real or imaginary children. We have already seen reports of this behavior among children in our schools. How would you recommend policymakers deal with this debacle? How do you prevent the abuse of CSAM uh, creation and distribution in an AI world? Yeah, th thanks for having me, Wes, and I think it's a really important panel and discussion for us to be having, um, the whole panel, of course. Um, so I was, I was thinking, re reflecting this morning that I think one of the things that's interesting about the a debate, policy debate about AI is it's forcing us to confront problems that actually come from the Internet era. They're actually ubiquitous across the Internet era, but we were, uh, we were attacking them with methods which I think were ultimately doomed to fail, but now are obviously you know, non-starters in an AI era. So um, to separate your question a little bit into two parts, one of which is the use uh, by children of, uh, of generative AI systems, including image generation systems. And the second, which I think is totally separate almost, which is the intentional usage by adults of these systems to create uh, child sexual abuse material. Um, you know, the reality is our approach to CSAM online is not working. It has not been working. Uh, we, we use the most sophisticated detection tools uh, that, that it seems possible to invent, and yet every year, the, you know, the FBI records greater and greater numbers of, of material that's, that's confiscated, prosecutions of, of people sharing this stuff with no end in sight, really. And that, that's with a system which, if applied to any area of content other than CSAM, would be recognized as totalitarian in its implications. And I'm not, I'm not attacking, I think it's, it's, it's justified in this case. But you know, this, this is the, the strongest, most robust case of, of, of you know, public-private partnership between all the major platform providers and the FBI with massive uh, data sets of captured images, searching you know, every, every mechanism we can imagine. Um, and now it's obvious that this approach, which, which was already failing, will not work for images which are generated sort of de novo, uh, either locally or, or on a platform, AI uh, image generation platform. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of things we need to consider. One, um, there's the spiritual dimension, which we've been reluctant to focus. Why, do we, why is it that so many people want to generate these images? What, what, what about our society is creating people, is misforming people to create this, this kind of desire, right? Um, this is not a normal, natural human desire. I mean, maybe in a very small fraction of the population, it, it's something that comes uh, from from you know abuse when they're young, or, or for for some for, from some you know, something in their nature. But for most people, I think this is a product of already being deformed by internet pornography, by uh, uh, you know not of the CSAM variety of the of the, the other variety. Um, so I think this is a problem which can't be addressed without thinking about the sort of demand source. And the other thing is um, our legal system, our legal structure around CSAM right now rests on the sort of the thread that um, even sort of consuming um, CSAM, which, which uh, you, you didn't generate, creates a market for it which, which harms children. The, mar the existence of the market for it harms children, and this justifies our laws against child pornography, right? Um, this obviously will fall legally with AI-generated child pornography. And so we need to return to a more robust theory of obscenity, 
in our in our legal in our legal code and in our jurisprudence. Um, and so I think you know, to, to my mind, this is a problem which does not have a technological solution, right? It has spiritual and legal and cultural solutions, uh, but not technological ones. And that was already the case before image generation. So there's not a quick fix. There's not a quick fix. Okay. No. Okay. Glad I asked. Uh, <laughs> well, then my next question for you: um, Meta has championed one dystopian manifestation of AI through creating chatbot character personalities of celebrities with child audiences. Maybe some of you have seen advertisements for this. Could you walk us through the social damage you anticipate or don't of AI companies encouraging relationships with animated chatbots? What does this do to children? In my mind, I refer back to that movie, Her. Um, but imagine that with children. So what are your thoughts? Well, it's an interesting, uh, very interesting question. And, and not to defend Meta, but they're hardly the only or most sophisticated companies making these kinds of systems. Right? They're, going to be, they're going to be ubiquitous, these kind of AI agents of different characteristics, including chatbots, uh, that are very convincing, very compelling, that you can have a kind of relationship with. And unfortunately, right, I mean, I don't, it's interesting you bring up Her, because, of course, that's a movie about the spiritual damage of loneliness to, a, to an adult, right? The, the primary marker for these is not going to be children. It's going to be uh, adults. Um, and I think, the, again, uh, the, you know, I think we, we need to have a framework and actually enforce our framework for giving parents control over the tools that their children use. You know, I think in the internet era, there was, there was sort of a fig leaf of an attempt to, to do this, but, but it was never actually substantively enforced. It was never substantively integrated in, in app stores and other, um, you know, all, all the responsibility for parental controls was put on parents. And the defaults were not, uh, uh, in many cases, were not set up to act to preemptively, uh, you know, force parents to allow their kids to do things rather than giving them the ability to, after the fact, you know, restrict their kids' use of platforms or devices. Um, so I think we need to get that right this time. But again, I think that the real problem here is uh, obviously, you know, the, the world that children will go, our children will grow up in is one in which they will learn very quickly that there are these, these systems which talk like people, respond like people, aren't people. Um, uh, I think the, the bigger danger is that we build a society in which human flourishing disappears, a society in which we, uh, for, for purposes of economic efficiency, uh, we already are doing this, of course. You know, one of the main, I think, potential markets for these kinds of chatbots is not for children, it's for the elderly who, who suffer loneliness at very high rates. So let's just give them a chatbot uh, that, to make them less lonely. I mean, these are, these are very dystopian things, but I think they have less to do with children and more to do with the general shape of our society. Well, this panel is not getting any less scary. <laughs> uh, my, my last question for you is, going to the 50,000-foot view, is child protection supported or severed by rapid AI acceleration? Can good AI effectively counter bad AI? Would children be safer in a tightly managed AI interface to the internet? I mean, I think, I think it's an important question. I mean, it's, it's, matching, it's actually like five or six different questions <laughs> put together, so I'm, I'll, I'll choose the one I want to answer. Um, you know, I think that the, uh, look, AI is a technology at least as powerful as the internet, uh, which is, it's, you know, we've scarcely begun to digest the implications of the internet, and now we have this technology, which operates very differently from the internet, but is nonetheless equally powerful. Um, so, you know, you, you could replace AI in that, that that sentence with the internet, you'd have a, a sense of kind of the scale of it, right? Um, I think the important thing for children will be 
focusing on children. Um, again, I think the second order implications of AI are more, more important than the obvious first order ones. You know, the second order implication of AI is that it becomes a lot easier to build systems without human involvement. Hmm. Uh, and unless we're willing to defend uh, humanity, not on terms of pure efficiency, but on terms of truth, goodness, and beauty, in terms of, of, uh, of, of the kind of uh, sympathy and, and being with that makes us human, unless we're willing to defend it on those terms, it will always lose to the AI. The AI is going to be smarter. It's going to be more scalable. It's going to be cheaper. Um, and so, and we also, so I think we need to think very seriously about what it means to be human. I mean, I think that's the pose, I think that is the question that AI poses to us. Efficiency and the good life. Those are good things to think on. John, we'll get back to you when okay. we get to Q&A, but thank you so much. Uh, next in our lineup is Bill Drexel. Bill is an associate fellow for technology and national security program at the Center for New American Security. His work focuses on the risks of artificial intelligence applications in national defense. Previously, he conducted investigative research in the surveillance state of Xinjiang, China, worked as an internal displacement data officer at the UN Migration, and researched technology competition at the American Enterprise Institute. Bill, Heritage takes the CCP threat seriously, and we're grateful that you are here to discuss the nexus of AI and our foreign adversary. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. My, my first question for you is, is a little broad. What would losing to China and global AI dominance mean for the United States? Yeah, that's a, that's a large question. Uh, and at the risk of sounding dramatic when I hear it, I, I think of some words from Churchill uh, when he said, if we fail, uh, we run the risk of, quote, uh, sinking into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack, but I, I think that we're talking about what may be the most consequential technology since the internet, maybe since nuclear fission, maybe since the printing press. Uh, and if there is a genocidal dictatorship at the helm of that new technology, uh, that's a very fundamental threat to human f flourishing, um, to, the, to the future of humanity in general. Um, particular elements of AI technology make that the case. One is that AI, to a degree that's that's not exactly true of other technology, um, can be encoded with values. Uh, it's often a decision-making tool. Uh, and if those values are guided by a totalitarian mindset and exported around the world, we're looking at a very different world, right? Um, I, I think particularly of three domains that I'm especially worried about where a future of CCP-led AI uh, could be catastrophic for humanity. One is the future of war uh, and violence. Uh, so to a degree that's not been possible before, we have the potential down the line for killer robots um, that will be calling shots. A second area uh, is the future of governance. So we're going to talk about uh, censorship shortly, so I won't dwell on that, but um, there's a huge potential for uh, surveillance, censorship, uh, totally unprecedented forms of brainwashing that the CCP could leverage. And a third and underappreciated area that I think doesn't get a lot of airtime uh, is the future of human biology. Uh, so 
We've had debates about bioethics and genetic engineering for decades, uh, but those debates have largely been speculative in nature. AI, for the first time, is unlocking the potential for precision human genetic engineering. And the CCP has already indicated uh, that it is likely to explore those possibilities much more thoroughly uh, and with a lot more reckless abandon uh, than other nations would. So you put that all together, and you're looking at futures that could really be um, dystopian in a number of ways. Well, Bill, you know your audience well. If you could respond to every question with a Churchill quote, <laughs> passing grade. But uh, you mentioned values baked into the technology. We, we have a tendency to view tech as neutral. Um, I, I'm curious what you think it means for tech to be hardwired for autocratic control, like what China is doing with AI. And what uh, does it mean to be hardwired for, say, peace and prosperity, a, a US version of AI? What does it mean to bake values in in, in this format? It's a great question, and I think it's one that we'll be answering for the next couple decades. For one thing, I think a challenge we face in fighting the CCP threat is that it's often more difficult to empower than it is to oppress. Uh, and so if your goal is to oppress, AI lends itself um, in a number of ways to kind of achieving that goal. So I would say that the, the kind of pinnacle of oppressive AI that we've seen so far is in Xinjiang, uh, where I spent a, a little bit of time. Uh, the Xinjiang model has uh, kind of, you can, you can look at it architecturally. So uh, a city that is kind of the historical, cultural home of the Uyghur population was once arranged around mosques where they radiated out um, there would be a mosque, and then you'd have a neighborhood that radiates out from that mosque. And then once you kind of hit a critical mass of population, a new mosque would be planted, and it would radiate out. They've raised the city um, and installed a grid of uh, surveillance nodes, uh, kind of surveillance police stations, and then arranged the homes around those surveillance nodes. Uh, the nodes are meant to track everything. Uh, they're meant to track your electricity usage, your water usage. Are you doing the prescribed uh, cultural activities that have been sanctioned by the state? Are you doing any cultural activities that are not sanctioned by the state? Uh, do you go to the flag raising ceremony every, every Monday morning? Uh, you have facial recognition cameras that have been designed by several Chinese companies uh, to recognize the faces of this ethnic minority for particular attention as opposed to the ethnic Han majority. Um, and then finally, you've actually got um, AI tools that will track, interpret, understand, and translate the Uyghur language for analysis uh, by the ethnic Chinese rulers um, to, at scale, detect if there's any um, thought or planning that goes against the state. So you can see already where that's headed there. I think something that's more freedom affirming uh, would be finding ways to set boundaries on these technologies um, and using them in more decentralized ways and even some, potentially some kind of AI systems pointed at each other. Can you detect when 
governments are going out of line and abusing their powers, or when companies are doing the same. Uh, you need to have kind of these, you, you basically want to stop it from being a centralized node uh, looking down on a population into uh, a more variated uh, kind of separation of powers. Um, I think perhaps with some inspiration from our founding documents. Well, I love that answer. Um, I think I have time for one more quick question for you. Would you mind just catching us up on what China has been doing to lead on AI? Sure. Uh, so the US and China, we, our approaches to AI more or less reflect our societies. Um, China's kind of authoritarian ambitions has meant that it's developed an ecosystem that's really good at authoritarian versions of AI. So that's image recognition, facial recognition, um, various forms of kind of tracking individuals uh, and analyzing their kind of activities. <laughs> They've been focusing on um, addressing practical issues in law enforcement and, and, and other kind of issues, logistics, et cetera. And they've been pumping this out around the world, particularly to developing economies and to um, nations that are either partially free or not free. Um, so while the US has been spending a lot of time in diplomatic engagement trying to kind of set the rules of the road for AI, China has been focusing on just building the road, building the road around the world, building the digital Silk Road, as it were, um, and is de facto gaining influence um, and setting norms just by making facts on the ground. David, I have some questions on AI surveillance and data privacy, if you're ready for them. Absolutely. Terrific. Well, hey, my first question for you is we tend to treat data cheaply. we trading an unlimited personal supply for easy access to online uh, digital platforms. What do you think the gold U.S. standard for data privacy should be? And please share why that matters with the proliferation of AI. Yeah, well, I'm going to kind of bring this back a little bit to the social media age to then translate into what we're seeing today with AI. And uh, I know Kara spent some time working at Facebook, the belly of the beast, and I think they provide an interesting kind of case study for what we're seeing today with Gen AI systems and really the consumer relationship. So as you all recall, Facebook begins with the espoused mission of connecting people digitally as they continue to advance and develop, realizing we need a steady supply of revenue. And personal information fit that bill perfectly. And it was ultimately the hiring of staff on Facebook, finding a way to mechanize this system to produce what is now considered to be the new oil, the new digital gold, so to speak, our personal information. And so as time progressed and Facebook kind of drifted away from that mission, if they had it to begin with, and turned it more into how do we get as many eyeballs on the screen for as long as humanly possible so we can collect more and more information. And as they became more efficient with the provision of their service, they got more efficient with collecting more and more granular information. And so that's kind of the mission drift, the move fast and break things philosophy that really defined the social media era and insert any company. And I think we can draw interesting parallels with the recent corporate governance issue with OpenAI, right, where the board initially had concern with Sam Altman that he lost sight of the vision of promoting AI to help humanity, ultimately ousting him over concerns that commercialization was subsuming that goal of advancing those responsible AI systems. And uh, you know, to your point, Wes, you talk about how we, the consumer, treat data cheaply. And as I just mentioned, of course, this is the cash cow for these companies. And I think Jake mentioned it in his intro, this opacity 
that has been built into the model of data collection, right? So it is in the interest of these companies to make it unclear and uncertain as to how much information they're collecting on you, what it's being used for, and how it's being sold and transferred. And so this is really the, um, I guess, the case study, so to speak, that's important to apply to AI because now as consumers, to a certain extent, well, on the one hand, we can see 90% of Americans support data privacy reform. That tends not to match up to the actual uses of social, deleting social media accounts. I'll try and be optimistic here. You know, coming from Texas, I think we can provide some non-feigned hope as to the future of data privacy. And uh, in, in Texas, I work very closely with uh, lawmaker champions, Representative Capriglione in the House and Senator Brian Hughes and ultimately Governor Greg Abbott to get past what is considered the strongest data privacy reform in the country. And it's known as the Texas Data Privacy Security Act. And, and, and Wes, to your point, you know, it's I think this is the great step in the right direction for the gold standard we need to work toward in AI. And what it does is it promotes transparency and agency on the part of the consumer. And it's effectively known as a digital bill of rights. And the, the first and most important step in kind of breaking this model is giving consumers a right to know what information is being collected. Because then and only then do we have insight into the black box that is the collection of our personal information. And I'd push back on the folks who say we blindly accept these terms of service so we agree to it. Well, the point is, again, opacity is the goal. Without that right to know what's being collected, we can't make an informed decision about what we're giving up in exchange for that service. And so the bill goes on and it provides additional rights, such as the ability to delete information companies have to correct inaccurate information, to opt out of data processing, and ultimately and importantly, the right to not be discriminated against for electing to exercise these rights. Um, the, the last thing I'd say, you know, because we're in the conservative movement, we operate in radical incrementalism, the shifting of the Overton window. This Texas bill is a great step in the right direction. But as we move toward a hyper digitalized AI landscape, I think the, the gold standard really should be an opt in model. So just think about how backwards it is coming to a tech company hat in hand, begging and pleading that they comply with state laws if you have them to give your information back, despite their terms of service, despite their privacy policy saying it's your or data. And so the opt-in model we need to work toward is companies come to you seeking express affirmative consent for them to collect and process your personal information. So, I, you know, Wes, I'm, I'm encouraged because even Congress fails to act on this. Um, we have tech companies. I mean, Microsoft has been pushing for data privacy since 2003. In Texas, I, I worked very closely with industry folks who recognize there is a crisis of trust with these tech companies. And so they stepped up and they did support state policy. And even absent an ineffective Congress, I think we're seeing states really take a decisive leading decision here. Well, it's encouraging seeing that surge of you know, flexing state authority when it comes to these issues. Um, we have a, you know, a lot to learn from the laboratories of democracy. Data privacy concerns with AI. Um, as AI technologies advance, the granularity of personal data that heard from seemingly innocuous information increases. An example I can think of is tech firms being able to figure out uh, that a mother is. Um, policy measures can be implemented to address the ethical implications of these predictive analytics, uh, especially when it comes to sensitive areas such as employment, insurance, finance, or discriminatory outcomes, and, uh, and how do we protect individuals from unwarranted biases? Yeah.
<clears throat> well, I, I remember when I first started looking at data privacy was um, the, I think it was 2006 or 2007, the penultimate example was the gal whose father was receiving um, coupons for diapers and other baby products because Target knew before her own parents did that she was pregnant. And that was more than a decade ago. And we've seen just leaps and bounds in predictive analytics to, to your specific question, which is really just using statistics and AI driven statistical software to predict outcomes. And some of the things that I've looked at, um, just to highlight where we're at right now and what we policy-wise, is take the automobile sector, which is becoming increasingly digitalized. It's not just larger infotainment screens in your Teslas, but it's sensors, scanners, video cameras. If you have level three or self-driving, uh, level three capabilities for lane assist, all that is great, but it also means new vectors for collecting information. So to the insurance question, you know, these automobile manufacturers are selling that information to insurance companies. How long does it take for you to stop at a stop sign? What's your reaction time at a stoplight? Or perhaps what time of day are you driving at? And there's a risk and concern of unwarranted biases whereupon those are all considered to be risk profile elements. So if there's a mother who, let's say, is working during the day, school at night and drives home later and that's her weekly routine, well, she might get hit with a higher premium because of that late night drive associated with either drunk driving or other um, less upstanding activities. Um, one, uh, at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, we have a child welfare center. And I was talking with our policy director last week about how CPS and other groups um, are using predictive analytics to determine the likelihood that an incident, so again, before it even happens, the likelihood that an incident will occur whereupon CPS needs to remove that child. And it's already informing actions. And there's at least five examples I've seen at this point where families with special needs are considered to meet that quote unquote quota to justify the removal of that child. So we're talking about indelible, irreparable decisions that could forever harm that child's life and that family's life. Um, and so to be optimistic now, um, in Texas, we worked on um, what's called the Artificial Intelligence Advisory Council. And I know many states have followed suit and we're seeing even congressional national level tend to follow um, this model here, which does two really important things. And one that Texas did, I think, really well in particular. One is it acknowledges that states have been using predictive analytics for years and that taxpayers, when state agencies are using it, taxpayers don't know how it's affecting the services that are being provided and how it's being used. And so the first step is to take a full inventory. How are we using this? How is it affecting the taxpayer? And what's that interaction relationship? The second is it creates an AI advisory council, so a panel of experts, uh, software engineers, digital ethicists, constitutional lawyers, and so on, to host fora to discuss the various applications of predictive analytics and AI. And what you're seeing so far is a more concerted approach. I think three major principles that at least at TBPF we advocate for with predictive analytics and AI, and that's transparency. So I mentioned the inventory piece. Second is human dignity. Um, I, I believe, Bill, you made the point about how it's much harder to empower than it is to curtail that um, autonomy. So how can we advance systems that are going to be bolstering the flourishing of humans? And then finally, and I think most importantly, because nuance is so lost in this discussion, is how do we ensure we have a sector-specific approach to AI? Because what what regulation or light touch guardrails work in healthcare may not work in transportation or criminal justice and so on. Um, and so we're seeing states step up in that regard too. There's still a lot to be concerned about. Um, and so I would just, uh, that, that's something to keep a cautious eye on. 
Thank you, David. Just as Bill was going on into avoiding the hard authoritarian elements of AI, the kind of soft authoritarian elements that you've highlighted are just as important for us to, to grapple with. So thank you so much. Uh, next up in our lineup, I am just delighted to introduce my colleague and steward of tech at the Heritage Foundation, Kara Frederick. Kara is director of the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. Her research focuses on emerging technologies and their domestic and geopolitical implications. Uh, like most of our panelists, she could speak on any of these issues we're covering today. However, my job today is to interview her about online censorship and AI. So, Kara, first question for you. Um, even before we get to AI, let's be clear on what we mean by censorship. Every modern social media company does content moderation. They do this to avoid obscenity, fake posts, and they also do this to tailor your feeds to see things that you agree with, hiding content that, that it thinks you won't find compelling. Where do you draw the line on what is censorship? Yeah, good question. And do I need the mic or am I good, everyone? Thumbs up. All right, cool. Um, so I like to refer to a former colleague of mine at Facebook on this question. And he's tweeted out, Alex Stamos of Stanford Internet Observatory fame. Uh, he says, content moderation is censorship. You know, uh, he, he's not somebody who uh, we necessarily align with uh, when it comes to conservative principles, yet he understands that content moderation is censorship. Um, you have uh, certain organizations who say only with the firm, prodigious hand of government, you know, pushing down on these social media companies to police the speech of Americans, that is the only way that we can consider the censorship. But no, Alex Samos, content moderation is censorship. Um, so, so I like to, to refer to, to his quote um, for that definition there. Uh, but I think what we've seen, and I don't want to you know, give a speech or whatever. I'm much more interested in what Matt has to say, to be honest. Um, but when it comes to the marketplace of ideas, uh, I, I think it's very important for everyone here to understand that the marketplace of ideas is on life support. And we've gotten a brief reprieve because of Elon Musk's um, admittedly ideological stance for free speech in buying X. Um, let's call it Twitter now. Can we just call it Twitter? All right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we, we've, that's not a repeatable solution. You know, I, I like to say, put not your trust in princes. Yes, we have Elon Musk right now, but he's a singular figure, and we can't depend on that being replicated over and over again. So I firmly believe that that took the wind out of the sails on a lot of these Section 230 reform initiatives in Congress uh, just across the street there. But at the same time, he's he's like the little Dutch boy, right? He's putting his finger in, in the dam and... Uh, we can't depend on the cavalry coming to save us. He's a singular individual who came up with a, a very singular solution. So I think it also bears repeating when you look at a genuine marketplace of ideas and what we have or don't have now is I, I'm, I've repeated myself until I'm blue in the face. So everyone who's familiar with the Heritage Foundation's work on big tech, you'll recognize this. But when it comes to censorship and content moderation, this is not distinct to just the, the digital application layer, right? So you, when you think of the full digital stack, and again, this is very pedantic, so I'll make it very wave top, you have layers, uh, one digital application layer, you have 
mid-tier layers like cloud hosting services, and then you have internet service providers, more foundational layers. This is a very, very um, uh, you know, dumb way of saying this. This is digital stack for dummies. But all of what we're seeing is censorship at, at this layer, at this layer, and at this layer. And that is going to be a problem. David Sachs is great when he talks about programming certain things that sit atop our large language models, like a trust and safety layer. When people are um, plugging into chat GPT, you know, let's talk about how terrible or how, how terrible Biden is. Oh, I cannot do that. Biden is a great person. Let's talk about how wonderful uh, Trump is. Oh, I cannot do that. You know, very incendiary, that kind of thing. That is the trust and safety layer that is coded by human beings, that is imbued with values because technology is not neutral, as we've said here before. Um, and as we get into the mid-tier layers, the foundational layers, as we get into um, uh, the, the different, dare I say, AI safety mechanisms, I, I think the information that we're going to be seeing is going to be flattened, is going to be truncated, is going to be severely curtailed, and the flow of information itself is going to be stymied in such a way if these, these content moderators um, and these programmers and these companies, frankly, uh, declare it so. Terrific. Thank you, Kara. Now, the next question tying AI to censorship. What does today's algorithmic censorship look like, and how do our current silencing tools paint a picture for tomorrow's AI censorship? How guilty are living, breathing humans in today's algorithmic censorship? And with emerging AI, are we entering a situation with more human control or less? So comparing today's algorithms to tomorrow's AI algorithms um, and the role of humans in censorship. Yeah, so what I I also think it's important to an audience like this to understand is there's not one algorithm to rule them all. When people talk about the algorithm, you know, with a capital A, um, it, there's a bevy of internal tools, various algorithms that these companies use um, to, to paint some color on it. I'll give you an example. I worked a counterterrorism analysis at Facebook at MPK headquarters in California. And what we did, we helped the trust and safety uh, engineers create these tools tools to, to ferret out what we thought would be um, the likeliest perpetrators um, of a um, potential terrorist attack. And I'm talking actual terrorism, not what people are considering terrorism today, according to DHS and February bulletins that say, frankly, conservatives with anti-government or anti-authoritarian ideologies who spread COVID vaccine, 19 misinformation, tantamount to terrorist activity. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about legitimate foreign Islamist terrorism, uh, which I went to, to Facebook to, to help counter. And we create or helped create an internal tool that took certain data points of profiles and uh, used them to try to automate that detection of any terrorist actor on the platform who had, say, uh, attempted or could attempt to use the platform for operational planning, which was our worst nightmare, which didn't, to our knowledge, happen when during my tenure there. Um, so there are, you know, from soup to nuts, we basically had the idea, I worked with the data scientists and the engineers to create the tool um, for, a, I would say maybe two weeks max, um, soup to nuts, the tool was created and shipped uh, on the platform and tested on the platform. That is a kind of thing that people would say, oh, the algorithm is, you know, like looking and, you know, tinkering with it. But, but those are really internal tools that a lot of these big tech companies live and die by. So it really depends on how many internal tools are being built, how many are being shipped, how many are being tinkered with, how many are, are being um, 
used internal to, to these companies and then working with specific algorithms as well to uh, potentially police speech of, of Americans in this instance. And we'll, we'll bucket it like that. Um, so I, I think that is sort of what the landscape looks like that not many people really understand because we're thinking, oh, the algorithm, the algorithm, the algorithm. But it's an interaction of a, a lot of these things that, that is really occurring uh, behind the scenes to the average American. Um, and then, you know, tomorrow, like I said, it, it, it's really, it comes down to how these AI safety mechanism, I'll, I'll sort of a bucket term use it, are, are coded, how they're deployed, um, how they're tinkered with, how they're iterated on, how they're shipped, um, what that looks like, uh, to, which will determine the, the character and I think the degrees of gradation of the censorship going forward when it comes to AI tools specifically. Terrific. Well, you know, I put the panel in a hard place, making them do predictions on AI with everything changing so quickly. Um, so, Kara, you know, when we come together for another event in the future on this topic, um, we're not going to hold you to your answer here. But I'm curious, do you, the conventional wisdom would say as AI proliferates, people are going to be less in control of the censorship regime online. Would you contest that? Um, as AI becomes more baked into our content moderation, our censorship, do you expect people to have more control over this sort of tool or less? You know, I really think it depends. And it goes back to, to Bill's comments and, and the tenor of your comments as well. You know, we always hew toward user empowerment as best as possible. Um, you know, we talk about malicious use cases or applications of AI as a cat and mouse game. And, you know, you build one tool and then you build another tool to contend with it. So if companies can live up to the promise of creating tools to empower the user uh, in ways that cleave to the values in our founding documents, um, dare I say, uh, given to us by God and enshrined in those founding documents, that that is that is the bright spot. That is what I am sanguine about, that people here on this, this stage or people potentially listening in who are the conservative builders of the future understand that and know that they have to create these tools to contend with um, what I would say an inertia of having sort of the machine, the content moderators, the AI safetyists that, that they're building up. So as long as we can offer um, that particular resistance and build in accordance with that, I think we have a fighting chance. Um, you know, it is, uh, it, it's something that we have to do intentionally. Uh, I do think we're behind. Um, but, but there are people, especially within these big tech companies, that are advocating for something like um, open sourcing these certain foundation models, which I think are absolutely critical. And I know it's a controversial stance, uh, according to some people. But I think you can dictate the design of these products and ship them to the world and draw the world to yourself by better products, commercially viable products imbued with our values like openness and transparency. And then you're going to have the AI future that I think people, everyone on the stage, even the, the lefty over here, uh, wants. <laughs> so, so that is that. That is, I believe, the solution. You know, you got to build out of it, as others have said, and you have to make sure that these technologies are embedded, imbued with the values, openness, transparency that have characterized the way that we build for, you know, as long as we started building in the United States to a degree. I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple areas we can talk about with the censorship industrial complex and, and whatnot, but um, I, I do believe that, that we have a chance and we have to understand that we have a chance and we have to start now. And that's how you do it. Thank you so much for your optimism. <laughs> All right. And um, finally, it is a real pleasure to welcome Matt Stoller to the program. 
Matt is the Director of Research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He is the author of Goliath, the 100-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy, and writes the monopoly-focused newsletter, Big. However, we have Matt on leave from a more important job, being a parent. Matt, congrats on becoming a dad and briefly escaping paternity leave to be with us today. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Of course. All right. Now into the questions. Big tech has treated the recent popularity of AI like a gold rush, stapling AI into virtually every product and service that they have. You have expressed skepticism for this frenzy, alleging anti-competitive behavior masquerading as the democratization of AI. Why do you think that this isn't harmless innovation at work? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. And I really enjoyed every single one of your comments. It was, uh, it was really interesting and frustrating because you made me think. <laughs> you might have even changed my mind a little bit. And that's, that's I, I don't like that. So please stop. Um, no, I, I really, um, I learned a lot. That was great. Um, OK, so I, I'm going to answer your question, but I want to give some kind of political context about where we are and why we have these dominant big tech firms. First of all, how many of you think that you know, there's been like conversation over the last five, 10 years about the power of big tech? How many of you think we've gotten a hold of their power, like we're kind of pushed them back in a reasonable way? And there's sort of a, anyone? How many think we haven't? You have not, yeah. Sorry, I'm just being very confusing. It's Paternity leave. Um, okay, so most people had their hands up. Those who didn't probably were just confused by my question. I think we can sort of generally observe without AI, people generally think we don't have a handle on big tech. Um, and um, so I want to get to the title of this um, forum, which is AI and Human Flourishing, a Pipe Dream question, which is like kind of a crazy title, right? Is if you just think about it, like we have this technology that can do, you know, Presumably, I'm not sold on it, but um, but that can do, you know, bioengineering to cure diseases that can transform industries in ways that are just unbelievable. And we're like, what a what a bummer, right? <laughs> I mean, like like I remember the conversation about automating all the jobs, and people were like, what if we could have anything we wanted whenever we wanted it? Oh no. Right, like that. What there's something very profoundly weird about our policy discourse um, that it's so pessimistic about being able to do new and different and very cool or dystopian things. And I think we have to. And it hasn't always been this pessimistic in America. America has traditionally been a pretty optimistic country, and yet, you know, this this is super gloomy about something that could be unbelievable or could be really dystopian. And we have to wonder why that is. It's like a long cry since the Jetsons, right? Um, so I'm going to quote, uh, you, you quoted uh, uh, Churchill. So I'm going to quote the other great statesman of the 20th century, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> <laughs> which is a joke that didn't really make sense, but I liked it anyway. Um, so he said at one point, uh, why did he hire Sheryl Sandberg, who came from Google, but before that came from the Treasury Department, he said, well, he hired her because of her government experience, because he said, quote, Facebook is more like a government than a business. Really, we're setting policy, right? And I think there's sort of an interesting question among conservatives, and I'm going to speculate a little bit here, because I'm not a conservative, but why is it that traditionally like free market conservatives are now weirded out by these immensely successful large tech firms? And it's because they're not. Businesses, they are private governments, 
And so the, the sort of spidey sense, that fear of concentrated power, that's what's, that's what's going on there. And one of the reasons we're so afraid of this future is because this is a tool that connects all of, it's a supercomputer that all of us carry in our pocket that connects everyone to everyone else. And it could be an amazing tool of liberty, but in fact, it's become a digital leash. And that's a political decision. We made a political decision to do that, so why? Um, well, I would say it's in response to two revolutions. One of them was political economic in the late 70s, early 80s, and these are, these are bipartisan revolutions, and the other one is a, a, a technological revolution that was layered on top of it. So what was that political economic revolution? Well, that was largely in response to a perception of government overreach from the 60s and 70s, a pushback on big, on big government from uh, Carter, Reagan, and I think the Democrats really kind of went along with it too. It was a bipartisan agreement. The government had done too much. And so there was a return, an attempted return to first principles, to a constitution of liberty. And to do that, you know, you, the, the conservative movement largely said, we have to get rid of this immense, unfair concentration of government power by breaking it apart. Checks and balances different branches of government, you could say horizontal and vertical separations, due process, things to get rid of this concentration of power. But there was an exception that both parties liked for different reasons. And that exception was these state-chartered corporations do not have to exist within this constitution of liberty. They just have to be, as John put it, efficient. As long as they're efficient, the lodestar, they, they do not live in this constitution of liberty. And I think for a long time, everybody was like, oh, they're private entities. They're not political. They're not part of our political system. And now all of a sudden, this, this telecommunication revolution happens. You have a whole bunch of consolidation, a bunch of other things that happen. But one day we wake up and we realize there's this whole other system, this extra constitutional system of these private states that live outside of our constitutional order, which traditionally, prior to the 1980s, we would have seen those checks and balances in the private sector as competition. That's how we thought about this, this Madisonian interpretation. But we wake up, and we have Mark Zuckerberg saying, I'm the government, right? And you can't touch me. And so I think it's pretty obvious when we have this extra constitutional system that is actually governing our society. The people, you know, politically, I think you see both sides kind of begging the oligarchs, do my, impose my social policies, not the other guys. Like, that's with whatever you want, censorship, ESG, climate change, you know, all of these, that, that's the politics that we're in. But it also creates this pervasive sense of gloom, of learned helplessness, which is why we're saying this immense and amazing technology is a pipe dream. Or is it a, I guess, it is a pipe dream? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So one would, like, it's pretty obvious uh, that, you know, this, the, the law is the law, and our political framework is our political framework. So why wouldn't these dominant tech firms control open AI or control all of these new forms of technological uh, innovation, if only so that they can control the deployment, slow the deployment if necessary? Um, and I, so I guess, I will finish by talking a little bit about 
why I think, I think AI is a very, it's a very confusing topic because it's not so much like a product as it is a, it's not like email or, or some sort of innovation like that. It's, it's a business method. It can be applied in lots of different sectors. It's a little bit like a wheel, right? You have wheels inside, in wheelbarrows, in airplanes, in um, industrial machinery, and we don't have wheel regulation. Like we regulate them differently, and that's like that's the way I think about AI. That's the way we we should sort of think about it. And so, what um, we are kind of um, f the fight with big tech, or the collaboration with big tech, is AI policy. That's what we're doing right now. I can get into some of the antitrust things that are going on, but I think we we see that kind of across the board. Um, Right now, so I'm skeptical that there is a democratization of, of AI, but that's because of this framework where we have an extra constitutional system dedicated solely to efficiency, and then our public policy apparatus live in this very constrained um, constitution, which is designed to contain them so that they don't impose on our liberty, but have in, in fact sort of unleashed the uh, the tech barons. Thank you, Matt. Uh, you know, you kind of filibustered your way into a more interesting response than the one I was trying to get for you. <laughs> Very Fast much appreciate yes, it. No questions going forward. Yeah. <laughs> so while I, I would try to give you two to three questions like the other panelists were at the ten, end of your 10 minutes. So we're going to now transition into Q&A. We can always go back to talking more about your, your content area in Q&A if the audience doesn't have anything or if the audience would like to ask that themselves. Um, so let's go ahead and transition. Um, and thank you all for bearing through my questions. Um, we are now ready for yours. So raise your hand if you would like to pose a question, and I will direct my colleagues to pass the microphone to you. At a Heritage Tech event, we're not going to trade our virtual attendees a second class. If you have a question, please type it in, and we will include it in the queue. If our audience is silent, like I said, I, uh, I'm not beneath going back to these other questions I have or booting up chat GPT. <laughs> So, do we have any questions from the audience to kick off? Uh, I think I saw your hand up first, sir. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. Is there any reason I can't hold the mic? Thank you. Uh, I hear an awful lot of talk about uh, international establishment of guardrails to control uh, AI, particularly with respect to China. And there is zero chance that China will respect any guardrail uh, that we or the United Nations establish. And so I need help understanding this pervasive magical thinking. Great question. Uh, I think it's one that we're all scratching our heads about. Um, my answer is we should try to cripple them as much as we can in AI. Uh, and that's a little bit of what we're doing already. So uh, it's true that our export controls on advanced chips uh, are already making them squirm in terms of certain forms of AI, but not all forms. Uh, it's, it's really targeting a particular uh, subset, which is an important one, uh, but doesn't target anything. Uh, everything, excuse me. Um, the other things we can do, I think, the best thing we can do uh, is to siphon off their talent. Uh, China produces more AI talent than any other country. Uh, and their, their best talent tends to be educated here and tends to want to stay here uh, and tends to not be able to stay here. Uh, 
Now, we need to be judicious about where they are working, without a doubt. But to my mind, the best way we can boost our own ecosystem and cripple theirs is by siphoning as much talent as we can uh, and placing that talent in strategic areas. Um, I mean, strategic here in terms of not national security uh, kind of centered. Um, so those are the two things that I think have the most kind of immediate impact. But I think you're right that uh, I'm very pessimistic about their, uh, their willingness um, or even ability to abide by any sort of global rulemaking or what have you. I just want to, uh, it's a very important question. I think in general, not just for AI, you know, weaponized brain drain is one of the kind of least well-utilized uh, strategies the United States can undertake for dealing with our near-peer adversaries. Um, you know, we should, we should have as many Russian and Chinese and Iranian you know, top quality STEM people in the United States as possible. We don't have to give them clearances and send them to the NSA. But even if they're just teaching math at the University of Nebraska, they're better off here than working on you know, strategic programs in their, in their countries, which is what they will do otherwise. Um, I do think that there is this interesting um, you know, idealism in uh, certain sectors of kind of, particularly the academic and international law communities about dealing with these technologies through international law. You saw very similar efforts around cyber, or very similar efforts around autonomous weapons, which also have gone nowhere. Um, in the case of AI, there's also this ideological element of a, um, a number of people you know, vaguely affiliated with the movement called effective altruism, which are concerned that AI poses, are more concerned about the threat of AI itself than about China. Um, and I think are incredibly naive about um, how international legal frameworks actually operate. Thankfully, you know, in terms of what we're actually doing, we're mostly doing things like chip controls. I will say there is one, there is one thing we, we ought to consider, which is um, as we integrate AI into military command and control systems, it will be prudent to deconflict those and to, to not get in an, ar an unnecessary arms race with those, with our adversaries, because it could lead to catastrophe for everyone. And there's precedent here during the, the nuclear age, right? We realized after the Cuban Missile Crisis, actually, Moscow and Washington have to be able to talk to each other. You know, we have to have protocols. We have to have ways of, of, of not unintentionally destroying the world. And as AI, one of the things AI is going to do in, in military operations is speed up decision cycles, but also uh, in not just necessarily in, a, in an intentional way, right? In, in a competitive way. If you don't act more quickly than your opponent, you will lose the ability to act. Uh, but this can lead. This could lead to uh, worse off outcomes for everyone. And so I do think there will be room for bilateral or trilateral um, negotiations about um, um, uh, command and control systems. But we're still a long ways from understanding what that's going to look like. Can, can I oh. offer an answer? I'll try to be quick. The, I, I just want to tell you what's behind the magical thinking. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Xi Jinping was in San Francisco and gave a speech <laughs> to every big tech, lots of big tech leaders lots of private equity barons, Wall Street guys, who all gave him a standing ovation. Mm -hmm. So that's behind, that's why they want guardrails and a framework and blah, 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 blah. So you want to deal with China, which I think is an important and dangerous threat. We got to break big tech. We got to get control of the private state, of the private corporations that are aligned with China here. 
Thank you so much. I'm Kelsey Frierson. I'm a technology fellow with Senator Thune. Um, and I really appreciate the kind of different angles that we've talked about with AI today. One thing that I'm thinking a lot about kind of in my role um, in Congress right now is this kind of sector specific hub and spoke model of AI oversight. Um, in order to do that, I've also been trying to do kind of a gap analysis of do these sector specific regulators need additional authority to regulate AI? Um, I'm really curious. I don't know who on the panel would probably be best set to answer that, but just curious what your thoughts are and if it makes more sense to have some sort of like centralized hub that addresses those gaps as opposed to empowering each sector specific regulator um, and writing additional authorities for them. I can take a first stab. So from a state level, the model tends to be Office of Attorney General, and I think as a deceptive trade practice, enforcing it that way is consistent, clear, and generally results in pretty strong enforcement. Um, the model I tend to look at is with cybersecurity for critical infrastructure at the national level. So there's such massive siloing that's happened, DHS for different sectors, Department of Energy, and so on. And as Washington does, the cloistering stovepiping takes over, um, and that prevents the sharing of information that could be actionable um, intelligence. So um, the the instinct to say new agency, that's not what I'm saying, but that partnerships, if it is going to be a multi-agency uh, approach, needs to be baked in and established on the front end so they can learn from respective enforcement agencies and so on. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And someone else from the national perspective wants to touch on that. I think they just you just need more. You need more authority from states. You need more authority in um, from government uh, agencies, but it also has to be very specific because it can't be unbounded or else it'll, they'll be like both tyrannical and they'll do nothing. Um, and, uh, but one of the, I think one of the problems that we have is there's this sort of desire in Congress and kind of in a lot of these conversations to say like, we need to really look at seating charts. That's really important to figure out like if we need a new seating chart. And that's because Congress couldn't even ban TikTok. Right, and it's like, do we need a new seating agency? Like, maybe. Do we need to ban TikTok? Yeah, right. And so, in a lot of ways, you know, when I'm looking at like AI policy as it's being developed now, you know, you have a bunch of regulators, you have states that are litigating, you have antitrust cases that are impacting the real world deployment of AI because AI is not new. Um, and it's like, okay, Trump brought the the investigation of Google in 2019, it brought a case in 2020, it's 2023, the trial just happened, the judge is going to rule some point in 2024, maybe it'll get appealed and like it'll all get done in 2025, 2026. We can't, that's crazy. Like that's just crazy. There needs to be much, much, much faster uh, ability for public officials and for private litigants. You know, you don't trust government, give it to private litigants, right? Um, to go after unfair, deceptive practices, things that are, um, I think we would all agree, are immoral. Um, and so in that sense, I would say you need more and you need tighter rules, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't get tripped up in the idea of just let's figure out more seating charts and more bureaucracy. Um, that's what a lot of people really love to do. I'm a, I'm a Democrat. We love that, but like I think you need, we need to be very clear about the problem you're trying to solve, the authority that to 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 solve it and make it quick and effective. Well, and I also think we have an opportunity here to to get after a lot of these things before we have to retroactively uh, try to uh, get privacy legislation passed or something like that. So we have the opportunity now with AI to um, help 
nudge, I would say, um, from, you know, with the sticks that you guys have to nudge these companies to, uh, to develop privacy enhancing technologies, you know, approaches to machine learning, um, like federated models of machine learning, like instituting digital privacy that are not going to have, you know, these onerous regulatory regimes, you know, have to come in on the back end and then, you know, fight in 117th, fight in 118th Congress, fight in 119th Congress, and then ultimately not get anything done. So let's go and let's have these ideas seated within the companies. And if you need to shake a stick at them uh, with your big stick, shake a stick at them and get privacy by design instituted in the, the building phase, the design phase of, of what you know the, the products these companies are creating. Um, there are, NIST has standards for, for privacy um, that, that can go a long way. You can um, enshrine biometric data, which AI-driven technologies like facial recognition make extensive use of um, as sensitive data with those specific strictures that NIST has already um, laid out for us and, and enumerated very, very clearly. So I think uh, it's very important for us, for everyone in these rooms, for everyone uh, staffing the, the offices across the way to understand that we're at the ground floor of this. We're, we're in the shaping phase of this. And in order to prevent down the line all of these uh, fights in Congress that are intractable, that, that don't tend to result in much, um, we we can fix that right now. Uh, you know, we can front load that. Um, so that is my plug for, for privacy enhancing technologies and, you know, getting into the decision cycles of these companies right now. Um, I, I think we're at a critical time and um, we're saving ourselves a lot. We're saving us a lot of pain in the future uh, if, uh, if we don't do it or if we do it now. Imagine if we'd gotten ahead of uh, social media like we want to do with AI. It'd be a different world. Um, like I said, we're not going to ignore our online audience. Do we have any questions from them? Uh, one, question that came in. one question that came in was uh, with regard to the concerns over the harms of AI and the need for additional gatekeeping. So there's a lot of arguments that specifically large language models should be closed source. Um, or, and some are arguing for the sake of transparency, we should have open sourced LLMs. And, and the question to the, the panel is which of those should, should we prefer generally and, and which of those should policy sort of push, push towards? Thank you. Carrie, you gave a green light to open source matters. Um, would you like to start? Yeah, yeah, of course. It? And, um, you know, the, the people who are better on this, uh, you know, I sort of formulated my own ideas and then realized that much, much smarter programmers uh, already came to those conclusions. So I congratulated myself. So um, I would <laughs> I would look at um, Andrew Ng's work. Uh, Jan LeCun is uh, more of Matt's persuasion, uh, but I think he has a lot of good things to say um, on this front. Um, at the Center for New American Security, you know, we had OpenAI on our AI task force uh, starting in 2017, 2018, and when they were releasing smaller elements of the of uh, GPT-2, um, that was was sort of a, a great vignette. I, I think we like to advertise because um, you had the open source community able to identify some potential malicious use cases of this very powerful risky model, as we called it back then, um, and and fix it. Um, so. I still think that general, uh, the general contours of, of that argument are the best. Um, and Andrew Ng fills in uh, the details better than I could from this stage. Um, but it, it's in, it's in 
imbuing technology with our values like openness, not uh, like the generative AI draft rules coming out of the CCP that say, you know, these large language models have to adhere to core socialist values. Um, no, offer our own affirmative agenda for these products instead. And you are, again, gonna draw the world to ourselves. People, I like to call them swing states, right? Uh, in Brazil, in India, uh, those important areas, they're gonna wanna use our products and not necessarily the products of the CCP when as they're upholding their core socialist values. The open source community can help with that. Um, and then there's an argument that if you open source these models, we're gonna lose the, the competition with China. Um, sorry guys, but like you've seen in cybersecurity, they've been in our systems, they're probing our systems for years. Um, if we don't think that they're gonna get our, our closed models, they're gonna get our closed models. You know, I shoulder to shoulder with, with people um, at Facebook who, you know, everybody else without that geopolitical cognition was kind of walking around like, oh, that's just Joe. But I'm like, Joe's got something going on here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, they're 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 almost going to get it anyway. So let's make sure that we can have the best product imbued with our values, which I think we should not shy away from making value judgments about. Our values are better. Our American values are better than CCP's values. So let's build products in accordance with those and try to get the rest of the world to use them. Yeah, I think this is such an important question, and it's a really about the it's about the shape of the future of. Our, of, this, of this technology and of our civilization, because the reason is if you if you have a if you move towards closed foundation models, then the regulatory approach is to regulate a small number. It's the big tech approach. We're gonna we're gonna coerce a small number of corporate very large corporations. They have a lot to lose because they have giant monopoly revenues coming in. Because in a closed model, everyone who's building on top of these systems is paying a little rent to the foundation model to make it work. Right. So it has a completely different political economy. And with open source models, you have you know everyday Americans using their freedom of association, freedom of commerce to build products, competitive products for the marketplace on top of these large open open models, right? And then the foundations are transparent; they can build models and products and systems that, that for the communities that they actually are a part of. Um, they can't be con centrally controlled because another benefit of a closed system is is central control, right? We can force. Um, I mean, it, it's not inconceivable if you have three or four foundation models, which in a closed system you would, that, you, that the government, or you know, or not even the government, right, as we've seen, could coerce them to, to overnight change the definition of a word, change the definition of a term, stop performing, you know, turn off the API for certain users. Um, so if if this, you know, Kara earlier mentioned the technology stack, right? You have yes, you have platforms like Facebook, but they're built on top of server infrastructure like AWS. Cloudflare, payments providers like Stripe, et cetera. Many technologists believe that AI is gonna basically replace, like a single source, replace a huge element, layer of this technology stack. Imagine being able to turn off the internet for your political enemies. Um, so I think it's absolutely critical that we preserve open source AI for our future. I, I mean, also think about it, like one of our advantage over China is when they invent something cool, they tend to like put their scientists in jail. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so I think the openness is, is not just important. It's not just important strategically. It's also a return to a traditional American values. Because if you look at a whole bunch of consent decrees in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s of dominant firms like AT&T, like IBM, the, the top firms that said you cannot, so I want to, sorry, I want to, we shouldn't lock ourselves out of our own technology. And that means we have to revisit IP. Patents. Uh, copyright trade secrets law. The Chinese get everything. 
So all this stuff does, I mean, it, it has economic effects, but one of the things this stuff does is it says Americans can't work on American technology, but the Chinese can innovate on top of our technology we're locking ourselves out of, which strategically doesn't make any sense. Um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when we had uh, a lot of consent decrees, I said 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, um, it, back then, um, you had like the AT&T had to license its patents on a non-discriminatory basis on things like the electronic transistor or the laser or all sorts of other tools and technologies that created Silicon Valley, right? So it's really important to recognize that this innovation and openness works for, to America's favor and it doesn't actually work. And when we aren't open, when we're closed, when we have these monopolists taking these rents, controlling the deployment of technology, it's bad for us, it's good for China. Just to add one slightly different perspective, I, I think I agree with most of what's been said. An interesting fact is that on the international stage, uh, China has been pushing for more open source. Um, and the logic there from their side seems to be that they know that they're behind on a lot of these foundation models. And so the hope is that it can kind of help their ecosystem. I think a lot of the people who are worried about future foundation models are worried that they could create, they could kind of get to a point where they could hold the hand of a bioterrorist and create some sort of super weapon. Um, the interesting thing there, though, is, you know, you have, you can, you can go two ways when you when you face that problem. One, you could try to close down the models. Two, you could try to develop safety mechanisms in building the models that are more robust than what we have now. Um, and so I think a lot of times. We have to recognize that, first of all, that risk is not really materialized yet, and a lot of people talk like it is. But at the same time, it could materialize, among other risks. Um, and so when we think about these questions, we do need to think carefully. Um, at the same time, I should also say <laughs> the, the CCP is pushing for open source, um, and our flirting with more closed source is also allowing them to kind of uh, accuse us of wanting to hoard the benefits. So. It's a complex, multi-layered issue, um, I think, that we need more research also in how to curb, uh, basically how to more robustly curb dangers from, potential dangers from models if and when they arise um, in the models themselves. Thank you, Bill. I think we have time for one more question, so go ahead and raise your hands if you'd like one to give one. Yes, sir. Going to your title, the AI versus human flourishing. If now with AI, it's like crime has DNA. Where is the copyright on if someone put all the material in, it's like showed someone else was using it for years. People didn't know the truth. How is AI being set up judicially more to be used in that side, like enforcement, where China wants it, the government has all the power here. You're basically under your creator first before you're under your government for that freedom. Does that work as a question? Yeah, so for your question, you're asking about uh, ownership of biometric information um, and governance of that? Uh, content more. Ah. Is it copyright on someone like encouraged? So if someone, a writer put in all their material and then it showed that people had been using it without credit or whether just historically for forensically showing all this ties together, if it, if it can do that and show all the strings attached, 
is that the human side versus the AI side? How do you have it be the human side is celebrated? Thank you for your question. Would anyone like to address this? Yeah, please, David. <clears throat> it's it's a very multifaceted landscape. Um, I was talking to someone at Adobe a few days ago, and Adobe is kind of following Microsoft in assuming all the liability in the instance where someone's creative work is used to create something new with a generative AI model. If there is a successful lawsuit, then those companies would assume that liability. Um, but it's, and I say it's multifaceted because not every company is treating it the same. Um, and the training of LLMs, large language models, on those creative works um, as a data privacy guy, a lot of it isn't necessarily clear until there's different tools you can go access online to see what books have trained what different models. And authors were learning for the first time their books were used <coughs> to train those models. So on the just pure creative side, you're seeing companies recognize we want to promote that innovation. We want to promote creativity. So we're going to take that legal liability. But in kind of the more, um, I, I don't want to say covert, but less obvious sense of just the training of how a chat GPT might respond, that is definitely not as transparent and clear. Um, and I think, you know, we've hit on it a couple of times now, but the whole legal landscape, you're going to see a lot of lawsuits. Um, the courts are going to handle a lot of questions here and where we can apply pre-existing precedent and law. We're going to see how that all plays out, whether we're talking Section 230 or any of the other myriad um, federal precedents in place here. Um, and that will, I think, be a big defining factor in the AI policy space in the next year. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that the the copyright and, and issues are really important to get right. The IP issues. I mean, I think it has. To, it is clear that you know uh, for training these models, something like fair use has to apply. There's too much value at stake relative to you know the 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 marginal value of somebody's uh, Harry Potter fan fiction having made it into a training corpus for OpenAI. Interestingly enough, once this ecosystem is off the ground, though, it actually makes assigning credit for kind of influence or derivation easier. Uh, shout out to my friend uh, John Stokes, a long time ago founder of Ars Technica. He's working on an AI startup called Symbolic.ai. It's aimed at, at journalists and media professionals. One of the interesting things is when you train these models, right, each of those contributions, like a book that you'd written, it gets it's called tokenized. It gets interpreted in a way that the, you can then run machine learning algorithms on top of it. In principle, you can actually derive which tokens were most important to producing some other derivative work. So you could move to an ecosystem where if you're an artist or a musician or a writer, you're actually getting you know, royalty revenues or licensing revenues based on work that others created uh, if, 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 you know, if the system determined that your token was very important to the, the content that, was, that ended up being created in the generative system. So there are some actually very interesting possibilities in looking down in the kind of 10, 20 year landscape. Thank you, John. Now, looking at the clock, I believe that this is the appropriate moment to wind down the program before lunch gets cold. But before we do that, uh, I would like to ask the panelists to provide any closing thoughts. And I think we have time for roughly 60 seconds each if you'd like to use it. So, John, would you kick us off? Sure. Well, I was um, thinking about Kelsey's question about uh, authorities. I'm struck with that the most important thing I think that worries me about our, our how our system of government is approaching AI is um, – in our administrative state, our Congress, our executive branch, they don't actually put human flourishing does not appear on the policy landscape. Safety does, efficiency does, sometimes political cost. But I don't know how we survive this transition if we don't find a way to imbue human flourishing, the, the human person, the common good, uh, with serious weight in how we decide some of these questions. 
Yeah, just a, a, a quick note. I, I think that um, the CCP, China, represents a huge threat to human th flourishing with AI. Um, but the most important thing that we need to do is to get these questions we've been talking about right. Um, and once we have a model, and America is uniquely positioned to build that model uh, due to the strength of our ecosystem and our founding values, um, we can help to lead that for the rest of the world. And if we don't uh, come to agreements and uh, consensus on how to create AI in a way that encourages human flourishing, um, we're leaving the rest of the world to China, and that will come back to us. Um, I'll be quick. Uh, <clears throat> with how easy it is to catastrophize on AI, I just want to highlight that data privacy should be at the core of responsible AI solutions. So this is to anyone who is a staffer for a member here, uh, the American Data Privacy Protection Act and other similar data privacy laws, getting those right ensures that there is consumer agency and more trust and really just empowering the consumer at the front end. So I'm optimistic. We're seeing good progress there. To get that right. We're, we're in the right direction. Yeah, you talk about agency, you talk about human flourishing. Um, I think the best way to do that is to give individual Americans, family units, um, access to this technology. And that is not restricting it to, say, those big five tech companies that have the natural advantages when it comes to AI, you know, throwing GPUs at the problem, their compute resources, uh, the high volume and ver variety of data that they've been collecting on us for years and years and years. Um, regulatory capture is real, uh, and you can't let these big tech companies dictate the, the future of these technologies. You have to empower, I wouldn't say the consumer, although it is a consumer, but you have to empower the American individual, the American family. You have to uh, give them access to the GPUs, like our friend James Poulos has said, um, and access to a slate of digital rights that are going to encompass artificial intelligence and the, the development, um, deployment, and, and use of these technologies. So they shouldn't just be dictated by these big tech companies. They should be available to the individual American. And they should be imbued with the values that make this country so great and allow us to even talk about giving and decentralizing these technologies in general. So I'm going to just one note of optimism and then one challenge to conservatives. So the note of optimism is yesterday, a San Francisco jury in the heart of big tech country uh, decided with just a few hours deliberation that Google has been monopolizing the Android app store. It's the first uh, antitrust loss for big tech ever, not the last. So the, the people, the public, if you think of a jury as a kind of quasi poll, are kind of with the notion that we need to control these dominant firms somehow. Um, so that's, that's a note of optimism. People don't want a pipe dream. They, they want human flourishing, right? The second thing, a challenge for the conservatives, conservative movement is we have an administrative state. It's either going to be in the hands of dominant firms or it's going to be in the hands of public officials in, at a federal and state level who are empowered as well as private litigants. And there needs to be some real hard thinking from conservatives about what that administrative state should look like. Because if there isn't, and the trends keep on going the way they are in Congress and in the judiciary, then we're going to rely on, on um, the, the Facebook election commission.
uh, instead of other forms of managing our society. On behalf of the Heritage Foundation, I'd like to express our appreciation to the speakers, the attendees, our big tech campaign, and everyone involved in making today's panel a success.